Once again, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday, the 28th of June. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. The People's Bank of China has pledged to keep monetary policy supportive to help the Chinese economy recover from the pandemic. Governor Yi Gang said the PBOC's high priorities are to maintain stable prices and maximise employment, and monetary policy will continue to be accommodative to support economic recovery in an aggregate sense. The decline in industrial profits on the mainland eased in May. Profits were down 6.5% year-on-year, compared to a drop of 8.5% in April. And last month, profit growth increased in 20 out of 41 sectors. But Hong Kong exports unexpectedly declined in May because of disruptions from COVID and a global economic slowdown. Overall, exports fell 1.4% last month from a year earlier, reversing April's 1.1% growth. Imports rose 1.3% in May from a year earlier, slowing from 2.1% in April and also worse than economists' forecasts. The SAR recorded a trade deficit for the fourth straight month, with the deficit hitting a worse than expected 36.7 billion Hong Kong dollars. And trade with China fell 10.1%, worse than April's 9.4% drop. President Joe Biden unveiled at the G7 summit in Germany a new $600 billion infrastructure plan to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative and to fund the launch of projects in middle and low-income countries over the next five years. The model, which includes a mixture of grants, federal funding and private sector financing, will focus initially on clean energy, secure communications technology and health systems programs. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong from Lead Securities and Mark Michelson at IMA Asia. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And if you have any questions or comments, please text them to 63935925. Email moneytalk at rthk.hk. You can go and post on our Facebook page, Money Talk, on RTHK Radio 3, or tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, U.S. stocks started the week lower and Treasury yields rose as better-than-expected durable goods and pending home sales data eased fears of a recession but once again raised inflation concerns. The S&P 500 dropped a third of a percent to 3,900. The Dow lost 62 points or 0.2% to 31,438. The Nasdaq Composite was the worst performer out of the three major indices, falling 0.7% to 11,524. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index rose half a percent. London's FTSE 100 gained 0.7%. Hong Kong stocks on Monday closed at an almost three-month high on hopes that PMI data due for release on Thursday will show the mainland economy stabilising and also as Beijing and Shanghai eased more COVID restrictions. The Hang Seng Index soared 510 points or 2.4% to 22,230 led by a surge of 15% for BYD Electronics and a gain of 12.4% for Xiaomi. Alibaba added 3.7%. The Hang Seng Tech Index rallied 4.7%. 
10 cents, slipped 1.6% after its biggest shareholder, Amsterdam-based Prosus, said it will begin an orderly disposal of some of its $134 billion stake to fund its own buyback program. And shares of Hong Kong exchanges and clearing jumped 7% after the Chinese securities regulator announced the official inclusion of ETFs into the Stock Connect scheme. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index climbed 0.9% to 3,379. In the commodities markets, this morning Brent crude oil rose 1.7% to $114.71 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,823 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield, that climbed six basis points to 2.32%. And in the currency markets, the euro, sorry, that should be 2.20% from the Treasury bond yield. In the currency markets, the euro was the outperformer at the start of the week, gaining 0.3% to $1.5. The Japanese yen was weaker at 135.36. Sterling is trading at $1.22.6 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 62 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.69 versus the dollar in both onshore and offshore markets. And Bitcoin, that fell around 3%, currently trading at $20,700. And a slow start to Asia-Pacific markets this morning. The SX200 is up about a third of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen 0.2% at the open. Good start for the Cosby in South Korea. That's moved up three quarters of a percent. But looks like here in Hong Kong, the Hang Seng is going to fall about 100 points at the open this morning. Times 8.09. Let's welcome our Tuesday morning guests over in our Queensway studio. We have James Wong, who is Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Lead Securities. Morning to you, James. Good morning, Peter. And here with me in Broadcasting House, once again, is Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning to you, Mark. Good morning, Peter. We had a bit of data out from the mainland, industrial profits. They declined uh, in May, although it did ease a little bit uh, after declining in April for the first time, actually, since the start of the pandemic. For the month of May, profits were down six and a half percent year on year that compares to a drop of eight and a half percent in april profit growth increased in 20 out of 41 sectors the the winner big winner was the mining sector where profits increased 92.2 percent year on year and for the manufacturing sector growth dropped by 18 and a half percent although that is slower than the 22.4 percent fall we saw in april um, China's industrial profits in the January to May period grew 1%. Uh, that's compared to 3.5% for the January to April period. And a couple of other bits of data. Industrial profits at private firms remained weak. They dropped 2.2% in the first five months of the year, while, by contrast, profits at state-owned enterprises grew 9.8%, and foreign industrial firms saw a 16.1% drop in profits in the January to May um, period. Um, James, it looks like uh, these profits are largely driven by things like coal mining, the oil and gas sectors, isn't it? Because of the Russia-Ukraine war spiking, uh, sparking this rally in global commodity prices. Do you think, though, this is going to continue? 
Uh, yeah, from a lot of the data that starts to emerge uh, for May, uh, we can uh, pretty much tell China's economy is making a comeback and uh, industrial profits. We can see, of course, its uh, decline has been eased in May. And uh, the other indicator that we've been looking at uh, very closely is China credit impulse. And this is a different thing with industrial profits. And China credit, credit impulse, in essence, is just new loans uh, in proportion to GDP. And uh, we're, we're not just looking at the absolute values. We're looking at the year-over-year -year change for that indicator. And the 12-month change for China credit import has been negative since last July. And we can see the uh, Hong Kong stock market and the A shares has been performed pretty badly uh, uh, following that uh, China credit impulse 12-month change turned negative. But historically, if the China credit impulse turned from negative to positive, uh, there was about there is about a one to three month time window for investors to enter the uh, the Hong Kong stock market with minimal drawdown and uh, a substantial upside. Uh, so this this time we can see the uh, the April readings for the 12 month change of China credit uh, impulse is still double digit negative, but for May it has made a comeback and the uh, decline is only 0.1%. And we are pretty sure that in June, the China credit impulse year over year change is gonna turn positive. And uh, because uh, I, th I think at the Politburo level or the State Department level, they have made uh, lending a uh, political mission for a lot of the banks. And uh, this makes uh, the banks more eager to inject liquidity into the the, the economy and uh, this is done in a more efficient way than before so so this is and uh, from the uh, the a lot of the the uh, the retail numbers online and offline uh, service uh, service providers uh, the the, uh, the revenues uh, we can see that China is really uh, making a comeback in May, and it's going to be get better in June. And so that's why we've seen Hong Kong stock market being pretty exci excited about it this. Mark, are you seeing signs of the economy making a comeback? Yeah, yes, we're seeing that. Of course, COVID's always in the background. And are there going to be new restrictions again, or if there's another yeah. surge? And there are other uncertainties, geopolitical and so on. But certainly, but... You know, you know, it's international companies' profits were mentioned as well, and they've been hit by, of course, what's happened to to Chinese companies because those are people, those are companies that they buy in and sell from, and many of them don't seem to have much visibility going forward this year, but are looking forward to 2023 when things look like they're going to be a lot better, but they're still a little uncertain about what what may happen in the next few months. Well, what stands out for me from this is just how unbalanced. Uh, the profit growth is, which also suggests the same thing may, may be for the economy as well. You've got, um, you know, profits in the mining sector up over 90%. But then in the manufacturing sector, uh, profits dropping 18% and also this big difference between private firms, which are struggling and state owned firms, which are doing better and then foreign owned firms struggling. There seems to be a wide divergence between across sectors and types of firms. Yeah. And this is, and this is what makes executives and companies are a little bit nervous. And why we've talked about this before is why they're looking again at China, not, not, not leaving China, but reconsidering what their presence is going to be. Not all of them, but many of them realizing that it's really important for most of them. They're going to stay there, but perhaps in a little different uh, position. 
James, COVID, that's still the big overriding fear, isn't it, particularly uh, for, for companies in the, uh, in the manufacturing sector? Uh, I think I think not that much, not as much as in in March and in April. And I think a lot of private firms, including Tesla, has resumed its production basically in mid-April. And uh, so, if we are looking at the COVID numbers, I think it's pretty much under control for a lot of the big cities. And I think the city uh, administration offices are actually not taking COVID cases that seriously because we've seen uh, directives from above, from the uh, the management level, top management. Level telling them not to lock down cities, not to block roads because of because if they found just like one case of COVID, uh, like what they did in back in March and back in April, and and I think economy uh, economy achie- economic achievement for local governments has become one of the pot- political missions right now. So they are uh, just giving the uh, COVID restrictions a little bit of slack right now. So they they're not really trying to. Uh, lock down the whole city because of just one or two single cases. They're trying to promote the economic growth. And I think uh, it's been going on for about a month now. They are having, uh, we, we can pretty much tell that local governments are having a change of hearts on COVID restrictions. On, on the ground, that's not always the case. Uh, we have We talk about this every week with our group in in Shanghai. And although the restrictions have been eased in terms of actually implementing them, doesn't always happen in terms Mm -hmm. of getting in, getting in supplies, getting out supplies, uh, et cetera. It's better than it was, but still the uncertainty is there. This probably will, will get better as time goes on, but there's still, uh, still some, uh, uh, some problems. I want to ask you both about President Biden's new infrastructure plan that he unveiled at the G7 summit in Germany. $600 billion infrastructure plan, which has been presented as countering China's Belt and Road Initiative, the US-backed program, is called the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investments. And Washington's calling on G7 leaders to agree to fund the launch of projects in middle and low-income countries over the next five uh, years. It includes a mixture of grants, federal funding, private sector financing, and is going to focus initially on clean energy, secure secure communications technology, and health system uh, programs. Now, all sounds very good, but I'm wondering why does this need to be presented is that some sort of counterweight to the Belt and Road <laughs> Initiative? Why can't they both just go along? There's lots of worthy projects in developing countries that needed funding. Surely the more, the more good, pro- good funding for good projects, the better. They don't need to counter each other, do they? No, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Of course, it's done for political reasons, mm-hmm. both domestic and, and also in terms of... It doesn't of, need to be of, political, does it? The G7, I mean, both are political to some extent. But, you know, using phrases like debt traps and so on. But the, the Chinese official response wasn't was sort of realistic in sense. There's enough there's enough to go around. Mm. Global infrastructure is, a, is really is really something that needs a lot of help. And there are a lot of there are a lot of ways to do that. So if this this has an impact, of course, it will be welcome. But it's not an either or. And then we have the, you know, we have all the acronyms. We've got the BRI, as we mentioned before, but we've got the AIB, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which focuses on infrastructure, which is much more selective and uh, careful in evaluating projects. But the only non-major powers that are not members of uh, the only non-members that are major powers are the U.S. and Japan at this point. 
almost everybody else is, and they're very aggressive too. So there's a lot going on, and they cooperate with the multilateral development banks, the the World Bank, the ADB, and so mm-hmm. on. This is what makes sense to me, and I don't think it should be an either-or, but of course, that's the rhetoric, I think, more than the actual situation. James, what, what do you think of this? I mean, one of, the, one of the challenges for projects like this is how would you make sure the money goes to worthy investments and, and projects that actually benefit people? Because a lot of this money tends to go to unviable projects, doesn't exactly. it? As we've seen with the yeah. Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. I mean, that's not a complaint about China. It's just a fact of um, this type of funding, isn't it? Yeah, I think the funding is uh, a little more than what China is spending in 2021. So they are spending about 600 billion for the five years uh, period. And so an average is about 120 billion uh, per year. And uh, China spent about 60 billion US uh, in 2021. So the the funding seems to be more sufficient at this point. But China has been in this business for uh, since 2013. And uh, according to Refinitiv, there were about uh, 2,600 projects going on in more than 40 countries and uh, with a total value of about uh, 3.7 to 4 uh, trillion. So U.S. is a little late in this game and uh, it doesn't have the the experience that China has developed over the the past nine years. So I'm thinking you're right, a lot of the money might be going into waste, especially they are not really building uh, simple things like railroads, like Mm -hmm. freeways. They're they're going into the health system and they're going into security secured communication system. Those usually requires a lot more evaluation and more expertise uh, in investing. So I'm thinking making this political is uh, just weird and peculiar. It's been peculiar since the the Blinken speech. Uh, We we kind of understand what the uh, States is trying to do. But uh, what were they trying to achieve? Is this a friend or foe situation? Is this a life or death situation? They don't. They don't think so, but they sure uh, don't seem to want this to be a friendly, competitive environment, like Blinken said. Mm. The evaluation part is very important in terms of that the money does go go to where it's supposed to go and does have an impact. That's obviously been a, a problem with some BRI projects, as the Japanese always point out. But at the same time, uh, AIB has generally been pretty good at that. I mean, it's much fewer projects, but they're much more focused and the evaluation process is much clearer. It's very unclear what's going to happen with the with this initiative, but it's something we're going to have to monitor. Isn't, though, I mean, what the UN is calling for for some countries, because there are countries around the world, developing countries, that have just got way too much debt already. They can't take on more debt. What they need is debt relief, and that's, that's not dealt with by either the Belt and Road Initiative or this new initiative at all, is it? Sri Lanka. Yeah, and then, and then Laos and you know and yep. and several others are are looking very very difficult in those situations. Though, yeah, obviously that's something that has to be a focus, and you have to worry. And James was right to raise raise that issue. James, I want to get your thoughts on the on the markets. Yep. We, we've seen quite a good rebound, haven't we, for uh, for for China markets? Yeah. Over the last sort of uh, couple of weeks or so, we've seen about, what is it, about 20% rebound uh, in the Hang Seng since sort of it, it, it hit a low uh, in about the uh, the middle of April. And then about a 17, uh, what was it? No, May, I think it was, wasn't it? And then 17% rebound for the Shanghai Composite since it hit a low on the 26th of April, um, outperforming the rest of the world. 
Yes, and the Hansen Tech Index has been up for 35 percent, by 35 percent since its May low. So uh, I think China and Hong Kong stock market has been a safe harbor, while the uh, the developed markets have seen some panic over either inflation or or uh, a recession or a stagflation. And uh, they have, I think, foreign investors has been piling up in in regional Hong Kong stocks uh, since uh, they did that once in uh, last November. They did that once in March, and mm-hmm. they're doing that right now, too. But uh, they, we've seen some money, uh, foreign money uh, outflowing out of Hong Kong in uh, the, uh, I think, in two trading sessions uh, of June. And uh, in both those sessions, uh, the Hansen Index was drawn, was, was, was down dramatically. And apparently, no, Southbound money was not, enab- was not able to, uh, to hold those selling pressure. But uh, right now, we've seen Southbound money pretty excited about the new data. And uh, we think the, uh, the, stock, the, the, the Hong Kong stock market is going to get better um, for before uh, September. And uh, the reason is that uh, we, we like the, the China credit impulse data that we talked about. And we, we were looking at the um, logistics, uh, both inland and on over the port of of, Hong, of Shanghai and other uh, other uh, international ports of Hong, of China, and we've seen the congestion problems has already been solved, and we've seen the container price uh, has been up uh, like uh, three to five fold. Uh, so we're thinking China Chinese manufacturers might uh, just have enough time to catch those orders for holiday seasons in Europe, in Europe, and in 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 the in the states, so we're 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 expecting a earnings revision for mm. Q2 for Chinese companies, which might provide some, some even more support for Hong Kong stocks. Mark, any fears among your member firms of recession at the moment around the, in this region? Of course, <laughs> absolutely, especially uh, one in one in the U.S. and Europe affecting this region. Mm. This region is looking a little bit better, and that's that's why there's some very cautious optimism about 2023 about china perhaps looking better than than the rest of the world by that time because of because of recession fears but of course if a recession happens uh the the impact and the implications are very uncertain mm. as we all know and we don't know how far it goes so that's okay. that's a worry reflected in the stock markets thank you both very much that's mark michelson chairman of the asia ceo forum at ima asia james wong managing director and chief investment officer at lead securities you're listening to money talk on rthk radio 3 825 on the phone from Tokyo is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Morning, John. Good morning, Peter. Um, talking about recession fears, what's the outlook for Japan? Are there, are there worries about recession hitting Japan in the second half of this year? Well, I think it's a global concern at the moment, as, as we're all aware. Um, we're facing inflationary pressures globally, but less so in Japan. Um, I think recently there was a report of Japan having its highest trade deficit in, since 2014. Um, and this, of course, is due to, uh, you know, commodity price pressures and supply constraints in conjunction with um, Japan's high imports of um, crude oil, for example, and other energy. And, and this is leading to, um, you know, concerns on, on the outlook 
going forward, certainly, mm. yes. I mean, this is um, quite unusual, isn't it? Because we're used to Japan having trade surpluses and, and large trade surpluses, large current account um, surpluses. What, what's changed? I mean, you know, why is, this, uh, why is this now turned into a deficit? And is it likely to be a structural deficit that's going to last for a long time now? Yeah, well, I mean, I mentioned uh, the, that it's the largest deficit on record since 2014, and, and back then it was due to the so-called abenomics, where large monetary easing drove uh, uh, yen depreciation, which led mm. to this uh, the situation of a trade deficit. And um, so basically, it was due to domestic uh, types of policies. Whereas currently, we we see that the impact is due to external factors, external price pressures. Um, essentially due to the situation in the Ukraine, coupled mm. with the impact that has on the yen. Um, and as well as that, of course, there are infl- uh, sorry, interest rate differentials with Japan relative to the rest of the world. So basically, um, I don't see it as being something structural because hopefully we would see the situation in the Ukraine dissipating at some point, at which time um, there should be some uh, reduced pressure on the yen and then a reversion of uh, the trade deficit more towards a surplus position. Mm. But it, it does. It, I mean, it's, it seems to be made worse because Japan's in a bit of a policy muddle at the moment, isn't it? You've got um, the Bank of Japan that's trying to raise inflation. You've got the government that's trying to re- uh, reduce inflation. They can't both do this at the same time. Well, I mean, the key problem is um, creating long-term rises in inflation expectations and this is something that has been a problem over the past number of years um, at the moment we have some short-term pressures on inflation but this is not really feeding into the uh, longer term inflation horizon um, and that's why there's this you know difference uh, as regards the monetary policy um actions because i mean of course the the monetary policy is implemented with a lag so Mm. unless there's a clear implication for longer term inflation expectations then there would be a reluctance for monetary policy actions as a result of that because it simply would not have an effect um due to the lag but you've got uh, brent crude oil it's up what 50 percent year to date isn't it but interestingly japan's energy cpi is actually down um year to date which is presumably because of the government yes i mean there, there are there are a range of measures that are in place in order to sort of shield um the economy from external price pressures uh, monetary policy is something that as i said looks at the, the longer term inflation horizon whereas fiscal policy can have um, more targeted impacts to help shield consumers and, and firms from, um, from pressures externally on, on, on uh, coming from energy, for example. Mm. But the, the big elephant in the room, of course, is wages. Wages just aren't rising, are they, for, for people mm. in Japan? Yeah, I mean, this is something I would say that is more structural. Um, there's a, been a large reluctance uh, by firms to engage in wage rises, and this is partly due to you know protracted levels of um, inflation over the past years, very low inflation, low profitability, and so th- this has basically impeded the pass-through of, of prices to wages and wages to prices, and also in- impeded uh, the development of longer-term inflation expectations. 
which which is why we we're in the situation that we're in today. So basically, um, there is a there's a real urgency to develop um, inflation expectations via the wage channel, and, and this is something that the government are are looking at at the moment. Okay, John, thank you very much for that. That's John Byrne, who's Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Let me give you an update on the uh, on the markets uh, as as they stand. You're listening at the moment. to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. Um, over in Australia, the ASX 200 is up about a quarter of a percent uh, at the moment. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen about 0.1 percent at the open. In South Korea, the Cosby up half a percent, um, and the Hang Seng looks set to open about a hundred points lower later on this morning. Stay tuned for back chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast. Fine, apart from isolated showers. Very hot during the day. Maximum temperature of around 33 degrees. And it's going to be very hot with sunny periods tomorrow. Um, but there will be more showers in the following couple of days. The very hot weather warning is still in force. It's 29 degrees right now. 75% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31. Here's Andrew Shirosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. A survey has suggested that around one-third of music industry workers have left or want to leave Hong Kong as they can't perform here due to COVID restrictions. The Musicians Foundation, which polled 460 workers this month, said its members have been unable to make a living for the better part of the past two years. Here's the group's founder, Chris B. I'm thinking the government can just follow exactly the same procedure that it does for the other workers in a venue, right? At the moment, they require them to be triply vaccinated and do a rat test every day. You know, they do this for bars. So it's easy enough to do the same thing for people in the music industry. Almost everyone in the music industry is triple vaccinated, and they have been for a long time. They're so ready to just get back to work. The Japanese government has asked people to save electricity as the country faces a surge in demand because of rising temperatures. Officials fear there won't be enough power to run air conditioning units, as the BBC's Michael Bristow reports. The rainy season in Tokyo and the surrounding area, which usually brings cooler weather, now appears to be over. It's been the shortest since records began in 1951. Temperatures have increased sharply in the Japanese capital and many other regions. That's led to a surge in demand for electricity for air conditioners. Officials fear there might not be enough power to run them, so they're asking people to save energy. Maintenance at power stations is also being postponed, and one aging power plant is being reopened. The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has denounced a Russian missile strike on a shopping center in the central city of Kremenchuk as one of the most brazen terrorist acts in European history. At least 13 people were killed in the attack, but that figure could rise. A United Nations spokesman, Stefan Dujaric, described the strike as deplorable. Any sort of civilian infrastructure, which includes obviously shopping malls and civilians, should never ever be Targeted. We're obviously concerned about the intensifying fighting that we have seen. We're concerned for the civilians who are being put at risk and who are being killed. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that a school football coach had a constitutional right to lead prayers on the field after his team's games. It held that the actions of Joseph Kennedy, a Christian, were protected by his right to free speech and religious expression. The BBC's Anthony Zercher reports. The coach had initially begun praying by himself, but in later games he was joined by players, parents, and members of the crowd. 
The school officials had expressed concern that the coach's actions would make his players feel compelled to join him and exclude students of different religions. Writing for the court majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch dismissed those concerns and explicitly abandoned a line of cases dating back to the 1970s that required public institutions to avoid excessive entanglement with religion. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today once again is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. For our main uh, subject this morning, we're talking about the